0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Scott. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas De Quincey. Section 17. Dinner, Real and Reputed, Part 4. This revolution as to dinner was the greatest in virtue and value ever accomplished. In fact, those are always the most operative revolutions which are brought about through social or domestic changes. A nation must be barbarous. Neither could it have much intellectual business which dined in the morning. They could not be at ease in the morning. So much must be granted every day has its separate, quantum, its dose—note, as the Doctrinists of Rent phrase it—of anxiety, that could not be digested so soon as noon. No man will say it. He, therefore, who dined at noon, was willing to sit down squalid as he was, with his dress unchanged, his cares not washed off, and— What follows from that? Why, that to him, to such a canine or cynical specimen of the genus Homo, dinner existed only as a physical event, a mere animal relief, a mere carnal enjoyment. For what, we demand, did this fleshy creature differ from the carrion crow, or the kite, or the vulture, or the cormorant. A French judge, in an action upon a wager, laid it down in law. That man only had a bouche. All other animals had a gulet. Only with regard to the horse, in consideration of his beauty, nobility, use, and in honor of the respect with which man regarded him, by the courtesy of Christendom, he might be allowed to have a bouche, and his reproach of brutality, if not taken away, might thus be hidden. But surely of the rabid animal who is caught dining at noonday, the homoferus, who affronts the meridian sun like Theestes and Atreus, by his inhumane meals, we are, by parody of reason, entitled to say that he has a, quote, maw. Note, so has Milton's death, but nothing resembling a stomach, and to this vile man a philosopher would say, quote, go away, sir, and come back to me two or three centuries hence, when you have learned to be a reasonable creature, and to make that physico-intellectual thing out of dinner which it is meant to be, and is capable of becoming." In Henry the Seventh's time the court dined at eleven in the forenoon, but even that hour was considered so shockingly late in the French court that Louis the Twelfth actually had his grey hairs brought down with sorrow to the grave by changing his regular hour of half-past nine for eleven in gallantry to his young English bride. Footnote to follow. He fell a victim to late hours in the forenoon. Footnote. His young English bride. The case of an old man, or one reputed old, marrying a very girlish wife is always to be much for the gravity of history, and rather than loose the joke, the historian prudently disguises the age, which, after all, was little above fifty. And the very persons who insist on the late dinner as the proximate cause of death, elsewhere, insinuate something else, not so decorously expressed. It is odd that this amiable prince, so memorable as having been a martyr to late dining at eleven a.m., was the same person who is so equally memorable for the noble answer about a king of France not remembering the wrongs of a Duke of Orleans. End footnote. In Cromwell's time they dined at one p.m. One century and a half had carried them on by two hours. Doubtless, old cooks and scullions wondered what the world would come to next. Our French neighbors were in the same predicament, but they far surpassed us in veneration for the meal. They actually dated from dinner. Dinner constituted the great era of the day. La presse dinner is almost the sole date which you can find in Cardinal de Ritz's Memoirs of the Fronde. Dinner was there, Hegira. Dinner was there, line, in traversing the ocean of day. They crossed the equator when they dined. Our English revolution came next. It made some little difference, we have heard people say, in church and state. But its great effects were perceived in dinner. People now dined at two, so dined Addison for his last thirty years. So dined Pope, who was coeval with the revolution through his entire life, precisely as the rebellion of seventeen forty five arose did people note but observe very great people. Advanced to 4 p.m. Philosophers who watch the, quote, Semina Rerum, and the first symptoms of change, had perceived this alteration, singing in the upper air like a coming storm some little time before. About the year 1740, Pope complains to a friend of Lady Suffolk's, dining so late as four. Young people may bear those things, he observes. But as to himself, now turned of fifty, if such doings went on, if Lady Suffolk would adopt such strange hours, he must really absent himself from Marble Hill. Lady Suffolk had a right to please herself. He himself loved her. But if she would persist, all which remained for a decayed poet was respectfully to, quote, cut his stick and retire, end quote. Whether Pope ever put up with four o'clock dinners again, we have vainly sought to fathom. Some things advance continuously, like a flood or a fire, which always makes an end of A, eat and digest it, before they go on to B. Other things advance, per saltum they do not silently cancer their way onwards, but lie as still as a snake after they have made some notable conquest. Then, when unobserved, they make themselves up, quote, for mischief, end quote, and take a flying bound onwards. Thus advanced dinner, and by these fits got into the territory of evening, and ever as it made a motion onwards, it found the nation more civilized. Note, else the change would not have been effected, and raised them to a still higher civilization. The next relay on that line of road, the next repeating frigate, is Cowper in his poem on Conversation. He speaks of four o'clock as still the elegant hour for dinner, the hour for the lotiores, and the lepedae homines. Now, this was written about 1780, or a little earlier, perhaps, therefore, just one generation after Pope's Lady Suffolk. But, then Cowper was living amongst the rural gentry, not in high life. Yet again, Cowper was nearly connected by blood, with the eminent Whig House of Cowper, and acknowledged as a kinsman. About twenty-five years after this, we may take Oxford as a good exponent of the national advance, as a magnificent body of, foundations, endowed by kings, and resorted to by the flower of the national youth. Oxford is always elegant and even splendid in her habits. Yet, on the other hand, as a grave seat of learning, and feeling the weight of her position in the commonwealth, she is slow to move, she is inert as she should be, having the functions of resistance assigned to her against the popular instinct of movement. Now in Oxford, about eighteen oh four oh five, 5 there was a general move in the dinner hour. Those colleges who dined at three, of which there are still several now, now dined at four. Those who had dined at four now translated their hour to five. These continued good general hours, but still amongst the more intellectual orders, till about Waterloo. After that era, six, which had been somewhat of a gala hour, was promoted to the fixed station of dinner time in ordinary, and there perhaps it will rest through centuries. For a more festal dinner, seven, eight, nine, ten, have all been in requisition since then, but We have not yet heard of any man's dining later than ten p.m., except in that single classical instance, note, so well remembered from our father Joe, of an Irishman who must have dined much later than ten, because his servant protested, when others were enforcing the dignity of their masters by the lateness of their dinner hours, that, his master dined quote, to-morrow were the romans not as barbarous as our own ancestors at one time most certainly they were in their primitive ages they took their coena at noon footnote to follow that was before they had laid aside their barbarism before they shaved it was during their barbarism and in consequence of their barbarism that they timed their coena thus unseasonably footnote quote took their coena at noon and quote and by the way in order to show how little coena had to do with any evening hour note though in any age but that of our fathers four in the afternoon would never have been thought an evening hour in the sense implied by supper. The Roman gourmands and bons vivants continued through the very last ages of Rome to take their coena when more than usually sumptuous, at noon. This, indeed, all people did occasionally, just as we sometimes give a dinner Even now, so early as four p.m., under the name of a, déjeuner à la, forchette, those who took their, coena, so early as this, were said, de die coenere, to begin dining from high day, just as the line in Horace, ut jugulent homines surgunt, de nocte latrones, does not mean that the robbers rise when the others are going to bed, viz. at nightfall, but at midnight. For says one of the three best scholars of this earth, de die de nocte, mean from that hour which was most fully, most intensely day or night, viz the center, the meridian. This one fact is surely a clencher as to the question whether koena meant dinner or supper. And this is made evident by the fact that, so long as they erred in the hour, they erred in the attending circumstances. At this point they had no music at dinner, no festal graces, and no reposing upon sofas. They sate, bolt upright, in chairs, and were as grave as our ancestors, as rabid and doubtless as furiously in haste. With us the revolution has been equally complex. We do not, indeed, adopt the luxurious attitude of semi-recumbency, our climate makes that less requisite, and moreover the Romans had no knives and forks which could scarcely be used in that posture. They ate with their fingers from dishes already cut up, whence the peculiar force of Senecas' quote, post quad non sunt lavande manas end quote. but exactly in proportion as our dinner has advanced towards evening, have we, and has that advance in circumstances of elegance, of taste, of intellectual value. Quote. That, by itself, would be much. Infinite would be the gain for any people that it had ceased to be brutal, animal, fleshy, ceased to regard the chief meal of the day as administration only to an animal necessity. They had raised it to a far higher standard, associated it with social and humanizing feelings, with manners, with graces both moral and intellectual, moral in self-restraint, intellectual in the fact, notorious to all men, that the chief arenas, for thee, easy display of intellectual power are at our dinner tables. But dinner has, now, even a greater function than this. As the fervor of our day's business increases, dinner is continually more needed in its office of a great reaction. We repent that, at this moment, but for the daily relief of dinner, the brain of all men who mix in the strife of capitals would be unhinged and thrown off its center. If we should suppose the case of a nation taking three equidistant meals, all of the same material and the same quantity, all milk, for instance, it would be impossible for Thomas Aquinas himself to say, which was, or was not, dinner. The case would be that of Roman Ancillae, which dropped from the skies, to prevent its ever being stolen, the priests made eleven facsimiles of it, that the thief, seeing the hopelessness of distinguishing the true one, might let all alone. And the result was that, in the next generation, nobody could point to the true one. But our dinner, the Roman coena, is distinguished from the rest by far more than the hour. It is distinguished by great functions and by still greater capacities. It is most beneficial. It may become more so. IN SAYING THIS, WE POINT TO THE LIGHTER GRACES OF MUSIC AND CONVERSATION, MORE VARIED, BY WHICH THE ROMAN, COENA, WAS CHIEFLY DISTINGUISHED FROM OUR DINNER. WE ARE FAR FROM AGREEING WITH MR. CROWLEY THAT THE ROMAN MEAL WAS MORE, QUOTE, INTELLECTUAL THAN OURS. ON THE CONTRARY, OURS IS MORE INTELLECTUAL BY MUCH. We have far greater knowledge, far greater means for making it such. In fact, the fault of our meals is that it is too intellectual, of too severe a character, too political, too much tending, in many hands, to disquisition, reciprocation of question and answer, variety of topics, shifting of topics, and points not sufficiently cultivated. In all else, we assent to the following passage from Mr. Crowley's Eloquent soliloquy: If an ancient Roman could start from his slumber into the midst of European life, he must look with scorn on its absence of grace, eloquence, and fancy but it is in its festivity, and most of all in its banquets, that he would feel the incurable barbarism of the Gothic blood. Contrasted with the fine display that made the table of the Roman noble a picture, and threw over the indulgence of appetite, the colors of the imagination, with what eyes must he contemplate the tasteless and commonplace dress? the coarse attendance, the meager ornament, the want of mirth, music, and intellectual interest, the whole heavy machinery that converts the feast into the mere drudgery of devouring. Thus far, the reader knows already that we dissent violently, and by looking back, he will see a picture of our ancestors at dinner in which they rehearse, the very part in relation to ourselves that Mr. Crowley supposes all moderns to rehearse in relation to the Romans. But in the rest of the beautiful description, the positive, though not the comparative part, we must all concur. Quote, the guests before me were fifty or sixty splendidly dressed men. Note they were in fact titus and his staff then occupied with the siege of jerusalem End quote. Quote, attended by a crowd of domestics attired with scarcely less splendour for no man thought of coming to the banquet in the robes of ordinary life the embroidered couches themselves striking objects allowed the ease of position at once delightful in the relaxing climates of the South, and capable of combining with every grace of the human figure. At a slight distance, the table loaded with plate glittering under a profusion of lamps, and surrounded by couches thus covered by rich draperies, was like a central source of light radiating in broad shafts of every brilliant hue. THE WEALTH OF THE PATRICIANS AND THEIR INTERCOURSE WITH THE GREEKS MADE THEM MASTERS OF THE FIRST PERFORMANCES OF THE ARTS. Copies OF THE MOST FAMOUS STATUES AND GROUPS OF SCULPTURES IN THE PRECIOUS METALS, TROPHIES OF VICTORIES, MODELS OF TEMPLES, WERE MINGLED WITH VASES OF FLOWERS AND LIGHTED PERFUMES. FINALLY, COVERING AND CLOSING ALL, Was a vast scarlet canopy which combined the groups beneath to the eye, and threw the whole into the form that a painter would love. Mr. Crowley then goes on to insist on the intellectual embellishments of the Roman dinner, their variety, their grace, their adaptation to a festive purpose. The truth is our English imagination, more profound than the Roman, is also more gloomy, less gay, less riante. that accounts for our want of the gorgeous Trictinium, with its scarlet draperies, and for many other differences, both to the eye and to the understanding. But both we and the Romans agree in the main point. We both discovered the true purpose which dinner might serve. 1. To throw the grace of intellectual enjoyment over an animal necessity. 2. To relieve and antagonize the toil of brain incident to high forms of social life. Our object has been to point the eye to this fact, to show uses imperfectly suspected in a recurring accident of life, to show a steady tendency to that consummation, by holding up, as in a mirror, note, together with occasional glimpses of hidden corners in history, the corresponding revolution, silently going on, in a great people of antiquity. End of section 14. Dinner, real and reputed, part 4, by Thomas De Quincey. Recording by Robert Scott, July 1st, 2007. End of miscellaneous essays by Thomas De Quincey.